Destroying the media lies and dismantling the narratives. One story at a time. It's the Adrian Slate Show. When Heidi Mann and her husband Karam took a leap of faith 15 years ago and purchased the Subway franchise in Seattle, they had no idea one day their dreams could be shattered by the city's required increases in minimum wage. Nine years later, the man's bought a second Subway sandwich shop in Kirkland, Washington, a suburb east of Seattle. But now their businesses are struggling as a direct result of the steady rise of minimum wage in Seattle, now up to $16 an hour. The couple predicted they would be forced to close their Seattle location by March 2020. Labor costs are too high. Our profit margin is too tight, and there is no relief for small business owners like us, Heidi Mann said. She spoke at a privately held event by the Heritage Foundation and Employment Policies Institute to examine firsthand the effects she and her husband experienced from government-mandated hikes in the minimum wage. The Seattle City Council passed legislation mandating that the minimum wage rise to $11 an hour in 2015, then 13 in 2016. For companies such as Subway with 500 employees or more, the minimum wage is now $16. As the minimum wage began to climb, the man's faced tough decisions. First, they were forced to cut expenses, which meant letting go four or seven employees at the Seattle shop. Then they had to raise prices, and sales fell. They cut store hours as a result of having fewer employees. The two man's remaining employees are ages 35 and 60, Heidi Mann said, because the couple had been forced to hire more experienced workers. They can't afford to hire and train entry-level high school and college students. Now, this is from the Daily Signal. How about this from CBS News? The legal minimum wage for New York employees by their employers with 11 or more workers rose to more than 15% on December 31st, 2018 to $15 an hour from 13, giving fast food, retail, and other employees a bump in pay. But in New York City, restaurant owners say the latest minimum wage hike is forcing them to cut hours just to stay afloat. It's the third rise in the city's wage base since December 31st, 2016, when it went from $11 an hour. The increase is part of the plan that phases in minimum wage hikes across New York State. The amounts and effective dates vary by region and industry. It's not just a New York phenomenon, however. Minimum wages rose in 20 states with the new year, forcing businesses across the country to grapple with higher payrolls and compete for workers in, with giants like Amazon who are already offering the $15 an hour. That's a key phrase right there. Just keep that in the back of your mind. These businesses are across the country forced to grapple with the higher payrolls and compete for workers like giants like Amazon that are already offering $15 an hour. Back to the CBS article, John Bluestein operates six New York City restaurants that employ between 50 to 110 people each. The owner of Heartland Brewery and Houston Hall, Bloonstein said the effect of the higher minimum wage on payroll across locations represents an immense cost to his business. We lost control of our largest controllable expense. There it is. He told CBS Money Watch, 
So in order to live with that and stay in business, we're cutting hours. Bloonstein said he has to scale back on employee hours and no longer uses host hostesses during lunch or light traffic days. Customers agree that instead of being greeted by signs that read kindly select a table, they used to be greeted by hostesses who would personally take them there. He also staggers employees start times. These fewer hours add up a lot of money in restaurants. He said his menu prices increased too. See a, see a correlation here? Have you noticed the direct correlation that government says, hey, we are going to mandate your minimum wage to be this flat amount. Now, it's across 20 states. Now, let's think about not every state's median income is the same. Not every state's cost of living is the same. So what's $15 in one locality, maybe like in New York, and may seem minuscule compared to the fact that there's so much competition for labor employees that, you know, in Duluth, it may be really high to have $15 an hour and be unsustainable. But the thing that you have to realize is the breakdown of what a business does. You know, this $15 an hour wage increase is looked at by the left, by the Alexandria Ocasio-Cortezes, as being some sort of, you know, we got to take the money away from the wealthy and give it to the workers because they're getting the shaft. Well, think about it from a business standpoint. Every business operates in the same way. It's just a different level of operations, a different, different level of revenue. Some have tighter revenue margins. Some have larger revenue margins. Some with the larger revenue margins have those larger revenue margins, not because they're trying to make extra money, but because they have bigger expenses to make everything work. So you have your revenue come in and then you have your cost of goods sold. Whatever it took to make that revenue happen, whether it's inventory, whether it's or, you know, whether it's uh the services to hire people like, you know, your employees in a service-based industry, you know, those are expenses that are controllable. You get into the expenses, utilities, labor, um, you know, things of that nature, things that will require you to look at things and say, hey, can we cut back on utilities here? Are we using too much electricity? Are we using too much labor? Well, when $15 an hour kicks in, then people have to go, hmm, that's kind of high. I may have to cut back. I may have to stretch the employees that I do have to make that profit margin, to make it sustainable for us to even stay in business. I may have to cut down on the number of employees I have and make them do more. And then on top of that, so they're being stretched then, maybe like in a restaurant, instead of having hostesses that they could afford at one time for a minimum wage pay that basically provide extra personal touch to customer service, Maybe now they have to get rid of those people because they're going to be the first on the chopping block. They're the most expendable. You know, they're going to look at it and say, well, maybe I can get the uh, servers to grab people at the front door. Maybe I can get the cook to go ahead and wash the dishes and we can just get rid of the dishwasher. Entry level positions are now being eliminated left and right. Customer service goes down because that cook is now jumping between making his orders for the restaurant versus doing that as well as managing getting all of the dishes through. You know, maybe that server is busy taking tables and can't be at the front door when people are standing around. All of those things come into effect. It's a snowball effect. And then 
whoever is running the business has to make these decisions. And then it gets to a point where you have let, let go so many people that your crew is such a skeleton crew, you may not even be able to operate. Is that a win for people looking for employment? Is that a win for the workers? No, it's not a win for the workers because the workers did not put up the capital to make this business happen. That's one of the things I got into it with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. She's talking about, well, you know, the, well, the workers need to be taken care of by the business. Well, if a business wants to have longstanding employees, then they will take care of the, of the workers. They will provide them with health benefits, with, you know, bonuses, with good wages, if they can afford it. If that's their focus, they can make that happen. But when you mandate it by the government, well, then you're now saying, well, the workers should be the ones to reap the benefits, even though the workers did not put any capital in. They didn't put any initial investment in. They didn't put any initial risk. They didn't have the idea to make the company. But what they did have was a skill set that would be valuable to the company as a symbiotic relationship. We want to hire you and your skill set to get the job of meeting the goals of the business done by having you work as an employee. We're going to train you to do that. In doing so, this person gets compensated by the company for showing up and providing that bit of business. If this person has other skills, maybe they want to go somewhere else. But to mandate that the business forced be forced to pay that amount of money, it's going to disrupt business. It didn't take a genius to figure out Obamacare would do what it did to the healthcare business. We predicted it. We warned everybody. No one listened. Same thing is happening here. And some businesses, like your Walmarts, like your Amazons, they have such profit margins. They have such um, scalable uh, business models. They have such of a market share that they can weather a storm of being hit by a $15 an hour minimum wage hike. And you know what that does? That clears out all of the competition that is hanging on by a thread that is still taking up market share, that is still providing competition. It wipes them completely out of the mix. They get knocked out because they can't handle that increase in, in cost, whereas Amazon and Walmart can. Now, this portion of the program is brought to you by Tar River Arms. Tar River Arms, TRAguns.com, veteran-owned, veteran-operated guns that you can see online, 3D imaging that makes the specs look really amazing. It, it gives you a good feel for the type of arm that you want to purchase. You know, support your Second Amendment rights. Support a good mom pa business. Tar River Arms, TRAguns.com. Mention Mojo 5 Okay, let's take a little quick recap on what I was just talking about. So what they don't realize is when they want to elevate these minimum wage hikes and mandate it across the board, they affect not just the big, rich, wealthy CEOs and the corporations and the, you know, uh, Mr. Monopoly Moneybags guy, Scrooge McDuck, sitting on all types of money and just, you know, hoarding it all up and keeping it from his employees and Go to work, Bob Cratchit. That's not what's happening here. They're affecting small businesses. Anyone over 10 employees was affected by what happened in New York. So think about it. A business has revenue, right? So money coming in. If they're in retail, maybe it's sales of inventory. Maybe it's sales of manufactured goods. Maybe it's services provided. Revenue is generated. Revenue is not profit. 
Revenue is revenue. Revenue is sales. Revenue is money coming in. In certain situations, maybe it's manufacturing. Maybe it's, you know, that's where your cost of goods sold, your, your items that you were required to purchase and put together to sell these items. Maybe it's the inventory that you purchased. Maybe it's, you know, the cost of labor. Maybe you've hired people for your services. In the case of a restaurant, you've hired servers, you've hired cooks, you've hired hostesses, you've hired bartenders, you've hired uh, busboys, and there's ways that you can compensate them legally. You know, of course, servers, busboys, those people, most likely uh, servers are getting that 2 13 an hour plus the tips, so they survive off the tips. So tip your bartenders, waitresses, and servers, please. Not to say that I'm not aware of that industry. But maybe your barbacks and your, your busboys are getting paid minimum wage and the tip outs from those working with them. But the hostesses most likely are getting paid a flat minimum wage at the very beginning. Maybe the cooks, maybe the entry level dishwasher is getting paid a flat minimum wage. And you hike that up, you're then going to say, like we said earlier, how do I meet the needs of the job function that they want? but not kill my bottom line on the minimal amount of return on investment that I'm trying to make, the minimum profit margin on the money coming in and still have those duties met. Well, I may have to have the servers greet the people, which may not be efficient and may not be 100%. Maybe I'm going to need the cooks to do the dishes, which may take them away from quality of the, sir, of the food items being created and being cooked and being sent out. You know, maybe they're, pay- they're playing double duty. Morale starts to go down. Inefficiencies start to rise. But when you have forced people into making those decisions based on government mandate, you're not helping the poor. You're not helping those in need. And it's amazing when you start to read some of the articles that these leftists put out. It's unbelievable. This one from the New York Times. Perhaps at no other time of the year is it clear then elective self-denial is just another privilege of affluence. If you've indulged in December without abatement, then you are likely to approach January with the intent to say, say no, to say no to cheers, to to cheese, to craft beer, to Shake Shack, to cake donuts, to braised short ribs that you've uh, perfected in an Instant Pot. You will stay home, make salads, and eat undressed grains, And presumably the money you will save will be spent on virtuous things. What are those virtuous things, pray tell? Why is it that if I spend money I have earned on things that I think are good for my family, it's less virtuous than what you spend it on? What are you spending on sending money to UNICEF to go help out those with, you know, cleft palates and and poverty down in Haiti that the Clinton administration's gonna or the Clinton Foundation's gonna set up their money laundering scheme for to plunder and destroy that that nation? Yeah. Is that virtuous? I mean, is it virtuous that you're going to send money down to Sean Penn, who's going to go down to some some disease-ridden third-world nation and show off his philanthropy and his goodness? He's a great person because he went down there and helped those people, and he's such a star that took time away from losing weight for his next movie and gaining all those millions for being cast in in nine months of uh, filming to go down there on his off time. Maybe he's flying down there in the middle of climate change debates. You know, maybe he's flying to Davos 
uh, or, you know, in the middle of the Davos uh, uh, climate change, uh, you know, the uh, managing of the world economy summit that they had. Leonardo DiCaprio is going to fly in on a jet. Private people, uh, people using private jets to fly into this thing and bitch about climate change. And then they go out and have these crazy, raging, sex-filled, totally overindulgent parties. Is that virtuous? Are those parties virtuous? Should the world leaders that meet in Davos go out there and say, hey, you know, we, uh, we got out here and talked about fixing poverty and talked about climate change and talked about sustainability and let's all get laid and get hammered up. I mean, is that virtuous? Going back to the article, on January 1st, the new minimum wage set at $15 an hour went into effect in New York City, and most companies employing more than 10, pe- uh, 10 people have to pay it. The increase, considered a crucial step in the fight against poverty, is the result of hard-fought grassroots organizing efforts begun several years ago and championed as a great victory by liberal politicians, even those who were initially not liberal enough to embrace it. Kamala Harris and Christian Gillibrand and all those, all those frauds that'll be running for election. We're going to get into some of that. That'll be a lot of fun. But how much will the new standard do to alleviate some of the most punishing aspects of the city's affordability crisis? Right there. She's basically saying we need to increase wages beyond $15 an hour because the city in which we live in, the most competitive city in the nation, the city where industries all meet The city where you don't have to work there for your job, but you decide to work there because you think you're going to get upward mobility and you're living in housing that supply and demand has caused the rent to go through the roof. The house of purchase or the the price of purchasing a house has gone through the roof. And you know what? There's never a talk about, hey, maybe you don't have to live in New York City. Maybe you can accomplish your career goals living in a place that has a metropolitan area and the cost of living isn't through the roof. But that's never talked about. We got to go on with this crisis. The new $15 away, uh, an hour wage went into effect in New York City. Most companies employing 10 people or more have to, uh, to pay for it. Buried under the relentless flood of news during the last few months was a report sponsored in part by City Harvest, New York's largest supplier of food to pantries and hunger charities, that suggested less than optimistic predictions for what the new wage standard might achieve. The authors of the report calculated a Self-sufficiency standard meant to determine how much income is now required to meet basic needs, housing, child care, food, transportation, health care, without help from public subsidies for families of different sizes living in different parts of the country. The study found more than five or more than two in five households in New York City lack the income to cover necessities. Then leave. That's the beauty of federalism. That is why going to another state that has other state laws, that has other state regulations, maybe lack of regulations, maybe it has a lower standard of living, maybe it's a great place to live. It just doesn't cost as much to be there. Maybe it's even near a coastline. Who knows? You have the ability to leave. You don't have to stay in New York City. Some jobs do require you to be there. Like Hollywood, you're probably not going to be that heck of that that big of an actor if you don't go to Hollywood. But guess what? Not every industry is requiring that. You know what does require that, though? D.C., Hollywood, New York. Journalist! And this is from a journalist's perspective. So they're fine with thinking that those metropolitan areas that are flooded by places that destroy any sort of electoral chances outside of an electoral college, laying the foundation of a playing field that's level, maybe that is why 
those places are packed and they view something like the Electoral College as being evil. But they found that this study is basically saying to live in New York City, you would need to make $69,427 a year. That amounts to an hourly wage of just under $33 a year. So guess what she's trying to do? Let's raise that minimum wage to $33 a year. So now it's not just that the minimum wage has to meet a good pay. It now has to take your family's budget and cover it all. Now, the Foundation for Economic Education said making the case for a minimum wage of $33 an hour in New York City, Gianna Belafonte from the New York Times thinks it's sufficient to calculate the minimum pay required for a single parent with two school-aged children to sustain a certain lifestyle in New York City at $33 an hour. Wages, however, do not depend on how much pay workers need. Wages depends on how much value workers produce. Government requirements that workers be paid an amount greater than the value of what they produce throw workers who cannot produce that amount of value out of work. Astonish, uh, astonishingly, Ms. Belafonte barely acknowledges this objection to minimum wages. To see the validity of this objection to minimum wages, suppose that low-skilled workers sold their output to the general public not indirectly by selling their time and efforts to employers, but instead by selling their outputs, such as packets of food, articles of clothing, hairdressing services, directly to consumers. Does anyone believe that all these workers' incomes would rise if government mandates that workers must raise uh, to generate hourly incomes of at least $33 an hour, the prices workers charge consumers for these outputs? Who does not see that the result of these mandated minimum prices would be not the income increase that Belafonte envisions, but an income, income decrease, which is inevitable results of consumers responding to the higher prices by purchasing fewer units of these outputs? Exactly. When you raise that minimum wage, the business has to find a way to make that money. They're either going to cut in areas that they can cut or they may raise prices. And when they raise prices, that means you as an individual consumer will then be hit with the brunt of those changes. Now, what's interesting is what also came out today in CNBC. This is a juxtaprogressive or juxtaposition. Amid a mass nationwide truck driver shortage, Walmart has upped the ante by raising drivers' salaries to $87,500 a year on average, beginning in February in a bid to attract the hundreds of workers it needs to fill out its fleet in 2019. The giant hired more than 1,400 new drivers last year, but as roughly two-thirds of the nation's freight is transported by truck and consumer demands for its wares increased last year, same-store sales grew 3% during 2018. The company needs another large batch of fresh drivers to keep it running. But the ultra-low unemployment rate and the jobs challenges on the road lifestyle mean there are fewer workers interested in taking these roles. The American Trucking... Um, um, let's flip over to here so you can hear my paperwork. You can hear that I'm prepared. The American Trucking Association estimates there was... 48,000 vacant trucking jobs, which may be why Walmart announced its wage increase. Its drivers will earn an additional one cent per mile and extra pay for every arrival, bringing the average annual compensation to $87,500. And it's all in rate close 
to 89 cents per mile. A salary just shy of $90,000 will definitely tip the scale in Walmart's favor as it competes for potential drivers. That's how it works. You want better employees? Then you fight for them. You provide competitive wages. You run the lead in your market share. And then you provide better benefits, better wages, better hours, better employee culture. And you're going to gain people who will flock to drive trucks for Walmart for $90,000 a year when they're fighting against Amazon getting into shipping, when they fight against other industries getting into shipping. And if it gets to a point where, you know, they decide, hey, trucking is going to be too much of an issue, it's going to cost us too much because the government decides they want to raise some sort of minimum wage and it affects the trucking industry, well, then they'll get drones. They'll get self-driving vehicles. They will do like the fast food industry and get self-checkout kiosk, eliminating minimum wage uh, workers. That's how it works in the real world. And economics needs to be taught to the left. Back in just a moment. This is Adrian Slade. So $15 an hour minimum wage hikes, you know, health care for all. These are all components in the agenda items of the socialist, the socialist left, the democratic socialist of America. Chris Hayes from MSNBC put this out the other day. The least sexy part of socialism is effective efficient bureaucratic administration but the project lives or dies based upon it yeah the least part of socialism it's all the broken poor destitute casualties of its impact along with the casualties of death you know death isn't so sexy my friend kate hyde actually put up the more sexy part of socialism is the bread line great place to meet people (laughs) to which i said Yeah, they always say sex is much more passionate with the threat of a gulag. At least the New York Times said so. They actually had a piece that said, why women had better sex under socialism. You know, when you're suddenly stricken with the desire and the consciousness to rise up about your individual rights, you know, sex is pretty daggone good. It's in the Kama Sutra, I guess, when you're behind the Iron Curtain. But that is what what we see with what's going on with socialism and the New York times and with the Democrat party, because the Democrat party is moving way. I mean, they've already moved to socialism. I mean, don't get me wrong there, but it's amazing when you start to look at some of the things that they're looking at for the new primary season, which is coming up the Democrat primaries. That is going to be a crap show to watch. There is not enough popcorn for us to enjoy this poop show. Of course, Elizabeth Warren, she was the first to step in the fray with her little beer summit, her periscope, her little Facebook Live video. There we go. Um, I'm glad for everybody who's joining this video. It's great to hear from you. Hold on a sec. I'm going to get me um, a beer. My husband, Bruce, is now in. Um, you want a beer? No, I'll pass on the beer for now. You sure? Okay. Well, come say hello to folks. Yes. So, okay. this is my sweetie. Hello. Um, he's the best. And I'm crazy. I love you. I love you, too. Thank you for being here. Pleasure. I'm glad you're here. Enjoy your beer. 
So, who have we got here so far um, that I can see? Uh, Gabmar, good to see you. Hello. Uh, Happy New Year to you. Yeah, Elizabeth Warren. Is this doohickey on? What is this live stream video thingy on my phone? I love these fangled new thingamabobs. I'm going to get me a beer. You know, honey, do you want a beer? It was a horrible attempt at trying to be a social media influencer, which Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, she seems to have gotten that down. She decides Elizabeth Warren, you know, Liawatha, Focahontas is going to break out. She's going to break out the axe and start scalping people. Most importantly, she's going to go after the scalps of the wealthy, the perpetually wealthy. She says, billionaires like this guy make me wonder what our country needs more of. Ranches with golf courses designed by PGA players and fireplaces imported from European castles or universal child care and a Green New Deal. Hashtag ultra millionaire tax. Okay. She also said, this billionaire NFL owner just paid $100 million for a super yacht. With its own IMAX theater, I'm pretty sure he can pay my new ultra-million-dollar tax or ultra-millionaire tax to help the millions of yachtless Americans struggling with student loan debt. Uh, Ms. Warren, why is it that you think you need to be the arbiter of what people need or should have? Why Why is it that you think you should be the one to dictate what somebody should have? More importantly, you're worth $8 million. Why is this something that should be of concern to you? And why do you get to make these decisions? You know, I don't think Elizabeth Warren has the propulsion that she believes she has. She and Bernie Sanders are actually in a weird position that is very eerily similar to what happened to Rick Santorum on the right. Remember back in 2012, during the primaries, Rick Santorum, he was considered the principal conservative ideologue that staunch conservatives weren't getting from Mitt Romney or many of the other candidates that were in line or, you know, up teed up next to be the GOP candidate. And he finished off with an extremely strong run during that during that primary. Then you take it four years later, he couldn't even get off the little kids table of early debates. You know, the overflow debates of candidates that weren't polling well. His message no longer connected from his persona. Now, the message was still connecting. People still wanted the message, but they didn't want it from him. They didn't want someone like him carrying the torch when they had all these other viable candidates who can embody that message more attractively to represent the movement. Same thing is happening with this situation with Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren. You know, at the time, they were the only ones out there to glom on. You start bringing in some younger blood, some Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's, some Beto O'Rourke's, you know, some Kamala Harris's, you might be able to move that needle from a different location, from a younger, youth, youthful movement. And that's what's going on right here. Look at the money they sunk into Beto in Texas. And they're actually trying to primary Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez in the upcoming, uh, her reelection. This is from The Hill. Um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez has infuriated colleagues by aligning with a progressive outside group. Hmm. 
that's threatening to primary entrenched Democrats. Now some of those lawmakers are turning the tables on her and discussing recruiting a primary challenger to run against her social media sensation. At least one House Democrat has been privately urging members of the New York delegation to recruit a local politician from the Bronx or Queens to challenge Ocasio-Cortez. What I have recommended to New York's delegation is that you find a primary opponent and make her a one-term congressperson. So they're gunning after her. And what's really interesting is she actually said something that I agreed with. I mean, it really kind of took me for a loop when I saw this. You know, she, she actually put out, you've got council people who have been waiting 20 years for that seat. That broken mentality, that public office is something you wait in line for instead of earning it through hard organizing. That is exactly what voters want to change. Shows how disconnected some folks are. That's when I'm like, ah, I'm agreeing with her. Did Mount Vesuvius just erupt with pure chocolate? Pure Ghirardelli chocolate all over the city, all over the town? Do I want to take a trip out there and partake? Yeah, she actually said the same thing we say on the right. When we looked at, like, Rick Santorum primary and Mitt Romney, and it was Mitt Romney's time. It's always their time. It's no one's time. And, you know, after we hear Ms. 1,124th uh, Cherokee drop into the race with her beer, and we throw other people's hats into the ring, we start to hear new people jumping on board. One in particular is Christian Gillibrand, and she got this nice little fluffery from Stephen Colbert on his Late Show. Well, there's been a lot of speculation as to why you're here tonight, and I just wanted to point out to everybody, what could she possibly have to talk about? She was here in November. I mean, November, take out the holidays, you were basically here last week. So, I'm just curious, uh, do you have anything you would like to announce? Yes. And what would that be, madam? I'm filing an exploratory committee for President of the United States tonight. Tonight. There you go. Okay, well, thank you for telling everybody here. Thank you very much. I, I, honored that you're here. Um, uh, why do you want to be President of the United States? Well, I'm going to run for President of the United States because as a young mom, I'm going to fight for other people's kids as hard as I would fight for my own, which is why I believe that health care should be a right and not a privilege. It's why I believe we should have better public schools for our kids because it shouldn't matter what block you grow up on. And I believe that anybody who wants to work hard enough should be able to get whatever job training they need to earn their way into the middle class. But you are never going to accomplish any of these things if you don't take on the systems of power that make all of that impossible, which is taking on institutional racism. It's taking on the corruption and greed in Washington, taking on the special interests that write legislation in the dead of night. And I know that I have the compassion, the courage, and the fearless determination to get that done. And of course, it didn't take us long to have news hit the wire on stories attacking Kristen Gillibrand. 
who's mulling the 2020 presidential run, said global warming was life or death to Americans when discussing her support for the so-called Green New Deal. However, Gillibrand has been criticized in the past for billing taxpayers for private jet travel to locations she could have flown commercially. Amazing. Gillibrand is a fraud on the, on the climate change. You know, she's taking the Leonardo DiCaprio, uh, Al Gore approach. Then we get to the whirlwind of Kamala Harris as she throws her hat into the ring. More late night show fluffery while she gives us her mood music. Kamala Harris, and this is my mood mix. Hey, it's Kamala Harris, and this is my mood mix. A song that has always made me dance. Check the rhyme, A Tribe Called Quest. You know, I'm talking about Fife. (laughs) A song from my favorite movie, Purple Rain by Prince and Shallow by Lady Gaga. Okay, so it's supposed to be my favorite song at a cookout, but you don't play just one song at a cookout. You play a lot of songs at a cookout, and I highly recommend Lemonade by Beyonce. A song that lifts my spirits always, Oh Happy Day by the Edwin Hawkins Choir. A song that has to be played loud because you have to hear the bass. The Sun is Shining by Bob Marley and the Wailers. Right? (laughs) The sun is shining and the rain. (laughs) A song that reminds me of Howard University, my alma mater, the Mecca, the real HU. Um, Push It by Salt and Pepper. Because it was a real hit song when I was there. (laughs) Favorite song from my childhood, Young, Gifted, and Black by Aretha Franklin. A song that makes me think of my birthplace, Oakland. Anything by Too Short. Too Short! (laughs) A song by one of my favorite rappers from California would be Humble by Kendrick Lamar. I work out in the morning, every morning, and um, folks wanted to know a song I listen to while working out. I don't. I watch Morning Joe. A presidential song for anyone. One Nation Under a Groove by Funkadelic. One Nation Under a Groove. Getting down just for the funk of it. Can I get it on the. Wow! <laughs> I hope you guys enjoyed my mood mix. More to come. Thank you. And look, I love Tribe Called Quest, saw him with De La Soul, but that doesn't want to make me vote for Kamala Harris. And she even wants to be a representative of Marvel Universe's nation of Wakanda. Oh, you will make the right choice. And as always, Wakanda forever. Paid for by Kamala Harris. She got a full-on town hall on CNN. So we know who's crushing on some Kamala right now. She talked about gun safety. Twenty six and seven year old babies were massacred in Connecticut. They failed to act. Here's what I think. I think that somebody should have required, and this is going to sound very harsh. I think somebody should have required 
all those members of Congress to go in a room, in a locked room, no press, no one, nobody else, and look at the autopsy photographs of those babies. And then you vote your conscience. This has become a political issue. This has become a political issue. Kamala Harris or Kamala Harris. Kamala Kamala. I don't know. Tomato, tomato. She says, go in. We're going to go in a locked room. No press. Nobody else. And look at the autopsy photos of those babies and then vote your conscience. It's become a political issue talking about gun violence and some wackadoo kid who stole his mom's weapons and shot and killed her and then went to some school that she wasn't even related to and killed all those kids. Well, guess what? How about we take you and the entire Democrat Party into into a hospital room and you look at the autopsy photos of all the kids that you want to kill? Look what they did in New York when they passed the abortion issue. Yeah, 40 weeks. You might as well just catch them on the way out the birth canal and just snipe them. You know, they, and then they tried to do that here in Virginia. Just listen to this lady and her proposal to the Virginia state legislation. So how late in the third trimester would you be able to, to do that? You know, it's very unfortunate that our physicians, uh, witnesses, were not able to attend today to speak specifically. No, no I'm talking that. about your bill. How, yeah, how, late, I mean, how late in the third trimester could a, a physician perform an abortion if he indicated it would impair the mental health of the of the woman? Or physical health. Okay. Okay. I'm, I'm um, talking about the mental health. So, I mean, through the third trimester. The third trimester goes all the way up to 40 weeks. Okay. But to the end of the third trimester. Yep. I don't think we have a limit in the bill. So, um, that she is about to give a birth, would that still be a point at which she could request an abortion if she was so certified? She's dilating. Uh, Mr. Chairman, that would be a, you know, a decision that the doctor the physician and the woman. I understand that. that I'm asking if your bill allows that. My bill would allow that. Yes. They don't even care about murdering a kid who has just been born or is on the way out. In fact, Delegate Dawn Adams, Democrat from Richmond, says she would not have co-sponsored the controversial Virginia bill if she had read it more closely. You're not only voting on legislation for it. You co-sponsored it. It's almost as though she sat there and said, well, you know, we got to pass it. We got to pass the law to see what's. Uh, wait, did I? What did that just say? Man, I should have read it. Isn't that why we're even here? Yeah, you co sponsored the bill. And basically, you're looking at doing some sort of abortion within 40 weeks. You know, it's funny because I saw this and it made total sense because I, I remember seeing this episode of South Park, but Tiana Lowe, she said. There's a 1998 South Park episode where Cartman's mom tries to kill Cartman under the guise of a 42nd trimester. I thought it was a riot when I was in middle school. Little did I know the Democrat Party would become a full-scale murderous South Park satire in my adulthood. Yes, that's what they've become. Listen to Ralph Northam. Yeah, he's our governor here in Virginia. 
the gun grabber, the guy who was going to push some gun grabbing legislation that got knocked down in the state legislation. Listen to how he justified this whole thing. There was a very contentious committee hearing yesterday when Fairfax County Delegate Kathy Tran made her case for lifting restrictions on third trimester abortions, as well as other restrictions now in place. And she was pressed by a Republican delegate about whether her bill would permit an abortion, even as a woman is essentially dilating, ready to give birth, and she, that it would permit an abortion at that stage of labor. Do you support her measure and, and explain her answer? Yeah, and I'm, you know, I wasn't there, uh, Julie, and I, I certainly can't speak for uh, Delegate Tran, but um, I would tell you, one, uh, first thing I would say, is this is why decisions such as this should be made by providers, uh, physicians, uh, and uh, the uh, mothers uh, and fathers that, that are involved. Um, there are, you know, when we talk about third trimester uh, abortions, these are done uh, with the consent uh, of obviously the, the mother, with the consent uh, of the physicians, more than one physician, by the way. Um, and it's done in cases where there may be severe deformities, there may be a, a, a fetus that's non-viable. So in this particular example, uh, if a mother is in labor, I can tell you exactly uh, what would happen. Um, the infant would be delivered. Uh, the infant would be kept comfortable. Uh, the infant would be resuscitated if, if that's what the uh, mother and the family desired. And then a discussion would ensue between the physicians and the mother. So, so I think this was really blown out of proportion. Uh, but again, we want the government not to be involved in these types of decisions. We want the decision to be made by uh, the, the mothers and their providers. And, and this is why, Julie, that legislators, most of whom are men, by the way, shouldn't be telling a woman what she should and shouldn't be doing with her body. And do you think multiple physicians should have to weigh in as is currently required? She's trying to lift that requirement. Well, I think it's always good to get uh, a second opinion and for, for at least two providers to be involved in that decision because these decisions shouldn't be taken lightly. And, mm -hmm. and so, you know, I, w I would certainly support more than one provider. Listen to him bumble and stumble his way through and justify it. And basically the provision that they're talking about that's in question goes the physician and this was canceled out, and two consulting physicians certify, certifies and enters into the hospital record of the woman that in the physician's medical opinion, based upon the physician's best clinical judgment, the continuation of the pregnancy is likely to result in death of the woman or impair the mental or physical health of the woman. Now, I don't know who's going to determine the health, the mental health of the individual, but remember, Ralph Northam was a pediatrician. And in Virginia, you go, well, why would a governor say this? Well, guess what? In Virginia, you're a one-term governor. You get voted in office, you serve your term, that's it. He's not worried about re-election. He's not worried about, he's a lame duck the moment he was sworn in. And realize that, realize I'm at the point now where if I have to choose sides, you know what side I'm going to take? I'll take, grab him by the vajayjay. Grab them by the hoo-ha of the Trump regime over killing what just came out of the JJ just because, eh, you know, mental health. I will take grab them by the vagina over killing what came out of it. I mean, they want common sense gun laws and three-day waiting periods and background checks. They don't even consider common sense rights to life for a human that was just born. And these arbiters of choice don't even want you to have health insurance choice. They want the government to handle all that.
but they do want you to be approved by a board of elected bureaucrats who have zero medical experience to decide, eh, maybe you should kill your baby or not. I mean, are we living in China? And realize that even though this kill the baby at the last minute abortion bill was introduced in Virginia, Virginia is dictated by counties in Northern Virginia and in the capital, but mostly in Northern Virginia, basically due to a bloated federal government. Yeah, there's a couple random counties and cities throughout the Commonwealth or the Communist Wealth that aren't completely built upon the population of the federal, you know, government, government, the federal employees that work for the government bureaucracy. But really, it's all Northern Virginia that does it. So this bill was really an abortion bill that is a reflection of the mindset of the federal government. Notice that there was a pattern to this legislation. They passed it in New York, and then they turn around. They've already got it in the works in Virginia. You think there's other state legislators that aren't out there working on this? You think there's other state uh, legislations that will not automatically see this come to pass, at least be brought in front of it? Luckily, Virginia knocked theirs down. New York, not so much. New York, the same idiots that voted this guy in. We're not going to make America great again. It was never that great. We have not reached greatness. We will reach greatness when every American is fully engaged. We will reach greatness when discrimination and stereotyping against women, 51% of our population is gone. Yeah, you know, he, he doesn't really care about, um, you know, the life of a kid. You know, we're going to have to reach greatness in America when discrimination in of, of 51% of the population is gone. Not just 51% of the population. You know, Andrew Cuomo, that guy, he was for um, abortion right there on the, you know, right there on the gurney. But then at the same time, he is in outrage over lethal injection. And he will jail you over gender uh, mispronouning. This guy is a piece of work. And in Virginia, they tried this crap here. And, you know, what is going to be considered mental health? I mean, remember, this coordinated effort that they're going to do on these state legislations is just like the bathroom bill. Google Terry Bean. We did a show on him. A pedophile, a leftist activist who sought out progressive legislatures that they knew they could pass ridiculous measures in so that when they got on the state level in a conservative state, then they would get rejected and everybody could cry homophobia, xenophobia, phobophobia, racism, whatever fits the demonization effort. But if it's a mental health, mental health issue, what? Are, do you have postpartum? Are they going to stop you from taking it upon yourself to kill your kid and do it for you because you have postpartum? Maybe it's because, you know, now they can use a midwife or somebody else to do the issue. They don't even need a doctor. You know, in Iceland, they talked about eradicating Down syndrome. Is that what we're trying to do? We just eradicate any sort of genetic issue by just killing everybody. So I wanted to get into some of Kamala Harris's uh, uh, policy issues, but I kind of felt like we're going to save that for another day. We're going to save Kristen Gillibrand's issues. We're going to save Beto O'Rourke and how they're attacking Howard Schultz, the Starbucks, uh, ex-Starbucks CEO, because he wants to run independent, how they're pissed about that and they want to eliminate the one guy who's standing up going hey are we reasonable here we're back in uh single-payer health care with no choice but then we're gonna kill kids coming out of the birthing canal that's your democrat party gang and you know what america will never reach great greatness when we have a democrat party out to destroy 
human rights, and then turn around and say they're for it under the UN. Out to destroy individual liberty, but then to say, oh, well, we're, we're for everybody's right to choose, and we're for freedom of choice and, and tolerance, and they're out there attacking people with MAGA hats on and Catholic kids, and they are deceptive, and keep in mind, whatever they accuse the other side of doing, they're actively pursuing, and so when they talk about the right being Hitler and Donald Trump being Hitler, these people are freaking Goebbels, and they're out there slaughtering and committing genocide on unborn children. I'm Adrian Slade. Thanks for tuning into the show. You can listen to us on Mojo 5.0, the newest and edgiest libertarian conservative talk network. You can hear it on iHeart. Just search Mojo 5.0 or check out Mojo5.0.com online. And you can listen to us Wednesday nights, 10 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, also, Saturday, 5 p.m., Sunday, midnight, and Sunday at 5 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. You can also check us out on the Mojo 5.0 Spreaker page for the podcast. Also, check out the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play, TuneIn. Also on Podbean, Overcast, wherever podcasts are hosted, you can find the Adrian Slade Show. Just search Adrian Slade. Also, make sure to leave some sort of review. The reviews help us go up in the rankings. Review the show. Give us a five-star rating or at least, you know, four and a half if you like. Also, you can read the blog at adriansladeshow.com. You can also find us on social media at Rants Out Loud and at Adrian Slade Show on Twitter. Find me on Facebook. Also on Parler, MeWe, Convo, Snippy. Just search Adrian Slade, and you can find us all over social media. Donate to the show at patreon.com slash Adrian Slade Show or anchor.fm. Your donation helps the show stay on the air, helps us to continue moving in the right direction to bring you the full story. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you guys next time.